1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Anker to the podcast today. She's here to talk about her newest book, Ugly Freedoms. Thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: So I thought we would start by just, one, establishing that Ugly Freedoms is a, is a book of political theory. I don't often interview political theorists, so For listeners who are unfamiliar with the book, it'll be helpful to know that for our conversation. And I wonder if you could just tell us, our listeners, about sort of what ugly freedoms are and what, you know, why they matter.
2: Great. Uh, The way that I understand ugly freedom is that, you know, freedom is so often understood as, you know, the the ideal of American politics and certainly larger than that. It's um, the value that people are said to always desire and embody, that governments claim to represent and to defend. And in so many ways, freedom is understood to be the opposite of domination or oppression. But what I use the concept of ugly freedoms to diagnose is the way in which freedom oftentimes actually enforces domination and oppression. Uh, You know, that exercises of freedom can include practices of slavery, practices of patriarchy, and of climate destruction. Um, you know, it, it might seem counterintuitive, but even if we look at a couple his- examples from history, we can see what that means, right? The, the founding moment of the United States, which was understood to be a radical act of political world making for people to stop being subjects of a government that does not represent them, and being able to collectively craft their own political world. But we see at the same time that this is happening, that the only way the founding happens is through incredibly violent and brutal acts of indigenous dispossession. It's literally the land that was occupied for centuries by indigenous peoples that is the land that is declared independence and that dispossesses indigenous peoples in, in incredibly violent ways of their relations to land, of their relations to others and of their world. So even in the act that seemed to be this pinnacle of American freedom, we see its ugliness in its concomitant actions of destruction and domination.
1: Yeah. So, you know, just following that response, you know, I I think these are I'm going to have variations of this question throughout our interview. But I was curious about, you know, early in your introduction, you say, you know, there is no pure freedom. And so Given that, I'm curious about whether or not, you know, you are interrogating freedom within the context, mostly of a sort of liberal, liberal democratic tradition. But I'm curious about if if the concept of freedom itself is just a kind of a kind of immaturity. Right. Like if 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 there is no pure freedom, you're tracing its sort of ugliness within a particular system should we be desiring something else or should we do away with the concept you know one of the later questions i have actually which i might just go ahead and (laughs) meld into this question is you know given that you're invested in um gosh in interrogating freedom de-idealizing it why retain it to describe the set of practices discourses behaviors and perspectives that you capture in your monograph So
2: those are two questions, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, they are, and they they get to the heart of what this project is about and why I'm doing it. Um, You know, when I first began this project, um, political theorists are obviously we think about freedom all the time, and so I didn't get this response from them, but I did from scholars in the humanities writ large and in American studies in many of its forms, which was precisely this question: Why bother with freedom at this point? Right? If freedom is so suffused with you know, neoliberalism at this point with white supremacy. And at the same time, if it seems it, it reads as such an old fashioned term, almost in the way in which people criticize agency in a certain way, what, what is the point of retaining it? And so the second part of my project is not only interrogating freedoms that are deemed ideal, but also trying to find and to attend to forms of freedom that are doing something different than these freedoms, freedoms that themselves are often considered to be unfree or gross or demeaning or debasing from traditional perspectives on modern freedom. And so I both want to argue that freedom as a concept for it, it needs to be retained, though I define it differently than other people do. And I understand freedom to be Collective and shared practices of world making that allow for all people to flourish. So in that sense, I think freedom is is a central value for us to understand what does it mean to be able to craft our own world? Ways that are not about, you know, power and domination, but are about collaboration, about mutuality uh, and about shared care for the lives of all people. And I also want us to broaden where we find those freedoms and to stop only looking at you know, either more right wing visions where freedom is tied up with uh, colonialism or, or property, but even left wing visions that can sometimes celebrate a kind of masculinist heroism, a kind of grand gestures of revolutionary transformation that I also think leave out so many of the ways in which people who might not be considered that that, that ideal subject can still practice freedom. So in trying to find freedoms in spaces that are often considered unworthy or neglected or deviant, I want us to broaden what freedom is and broaden how we practice it, making it more accessible. If freedom doesn't need to have the kind of ideal moral subject, self-willing his action, that opens up so many more spaces to think about how do we craft our worlds together. And that's what I want to hold on to.
1: Yeah, I just want to follow up on that. I guess I guess my question is not only sort of why bother with freedom at this historical moment, but given that there is no kind of pure freedom, I wonder if even these sort of ugly freedoms, the second valence of the kind of freedoms um, that you talk about in your book, I wonder whether or not they tempt a kind of idealism, right? Um, because often what you're saying is like, and we're gonna look at specific parts in your book, but I'm just curious, these are sort of burning questions that are gonna appear, I think, across the interview. I'm, I'm curious what it means to sort of name collective collective practices of world making, for example, that are partial, that are ephemeral, that are sometimes bound with what it is they would resist. And I understand that that, that is within the context of a certain philosophical understanding of, political possibility and behavior. But even so, like, I wonder, I wonder about scale, for example, so is, you know, and I feel like we have these debates every, every decade. So in the 90s, it was like, you know, the fast food worker who like self fashions their uniform. And that was like, that's resistance. But it's like, well, no, at the point that McDonald's said, stop doing that, they'd stop doing that because they need the job. And so, you know, it becomes a matter of, of scale to me, right? Like, you know, and we're gonna, I have specific questions about this, but I wonder if, you know, various forms of self-fashioning, various forms of collective action that nevertheless don't overwhelm, um, you know, the systems, the structures they thwart. um, I wonder if, if, if those actions are distinct from sort of large scale revolutionary practices that traditionally concern political theorists, if we would also call those ugly freedom, for example.
2: Right. The question about purity is central here because in de-idealizing freedom, I don't just want to say that the freedoms that I support are the ones that are going to be ideal and pure, and the freedoms that I don't support are the ones that are bad. I think part of a serious reckoning with the legacy of freedom is accepting the fact that all forms of freedom are not going to be ideal. That freedoms will often have remainders or people who have been, are excluded from it or people whose image becomes the opposing form of what freedom can be, or even unintentional ways in which um, you know, freedoms that we might celebrate at one moment, we realize later we're actually subjugating uh, the land or more than human creatures or other people who were deemed to be unfree. And I think part of the practice of freedom is not imagining that those can be easily eradicated, but to always be attending to it in the same way that we now think about democracy as if democracy is, you know, you know, people participating in their in governing decisions. We know that that does not need to be an ideal practice. And in fact, it never has been. And it's always going to be problematic and agonistic and antagonistic. I want us to do the same thing for freedom, to not Therefore, imagine that the freedoms that we invested are always going to be unimbricated in forms of domination or control and violence, and that that form of reflection and criticism is something that I think needs to be a crucial part of some of these world-making practices, right? What does one world exclude? And, you know, who's not included in that world and how do we attend to that? So that's what I want us to attend to. Um, And I think that's also partly why the question of scale becomes important. I don't want to say that the, the desire and visions and practices of revolutionary transformation that can change our world to a more just, free and equal one are bad or wrong, not in any way. What I want to do is, I mean, they will certainly have their own violences and remainders, but I'm not saying that therefore that that large-scale transformation should not be a desire or a goal. What I am saying is that many of these smaller practices should not be discounted as part of the work that it would take to do those transformations. So if we get to something like people fashioning their own uniforms, right? I mean, I think the question there is a question of power. Like what is power really being changed? What are the dynamics that are being shifted in that moment? Not all forms of resistance are necessarily practices of freedom or even really have power or say in this world. I think all of these exercises of some of these smaller and uglier freedoms really depend very specifically on the spaces and the moments in which they are enacted. Right. So when I'm looking, for instance, at, you know, uh, reading Sadia Hartman's Uh, Wayward Lives' Beautiful Experiments as a form of of ugly freedom in both of its valences, both criticizing ideal forms of freedom for the violence they enact and also celebrating and uplifting practices of freedom that would otherwise be denigrated as unfree or as inconsequential Part of what Hartman is saying when she's looking at some practices like free love or the right to opacity, she's not saying every practice of free love is therefore a practice of freedom, right? It it, it's, it is deeply dependent on the context in which people are practicing, the meaning that they give to their world and the world-making practices that this contributes to. So I think like Hartman, I would want to argue, you know, for for the the historical and spatial and contextual specificity of these actions. Yeah, no, I, I,
1: I like that response a lot. You know, deep context, sort of all practices of freedom, sort of having remainders, exclusions, unintentional consequences. Um, no, I think that that's super helpful. Just for our listeners, you know, we've been talking a lot about the two valences of ugly freedom, but I haven't given you a chance to really tell them what they are. Um, and so I wonder if you could first tell us what those two valences of ugly freedoms are, and then tell us maybe how they're related to each other.
2: Great. So the first valence of freedom is, is pretty close to what we've been discussing this whole time, which is thinking of the ways in which freedom um, freedom can be exercised as domination, as subjugation and control. And that these are not merely the unintended effects of freedom, but that these can be core exercises of freedom's practice. So when we look back at the antebellum U.S. and we think about practices of enslavement, right, slavery was understood on the one hand to be the opposite of freedom, but it was also understood to be a practice of freedom for people, for enslavers, for masters of the plantation who understood that you know, uh, their freedom to be a freedom as the right of what to do on their own property, the freedom of what they can do with their own human property, their right to collective self-rule in their polities, a polity that allowed for, and uh, you know, celebrated and relied on enslavement. So in many of these spaces, slavery was considered a practice of freedom. And that is the core understanding of ugly freedoms that I drawn in the first valence. The second valence gets more to what we were discussing just a couple minutes ago, which is how we can actually find denigrated and um, undervalued practices of freedom in spaces that the first form of freedom might consider unvaluable. So I'm thinking of freedom that can be found in conditions of dependence, where so often freedom is otherwise understood to be a condition of independence, or where freedom can be found in situations of... um, of moral debasement rather than understanding freedom as a space you know where it's always an ideal moral subject yearning to be free especially because categories of moral debasement were oftentimes t- practices of the peoples and the, um, you know, and the cultures that were considered to be unworthy of freedom's exercise. So every practice of freedom was considered itself kind of morally debased or inappropriate or unworthy of the name. So I want to, the second type of freedom is looking for freedom in spaces that are traditionally considered waste or deviance or spaces of neglect in order to see what types of world-making practices can still be found there. I'm not trying to idealize those spaces, and I often try to point out that the freedoms that are practiced there are going to be disappointed. They might still seem inconsequential. They might still seem um, morally compromised and problematic that can make us seem uncomfortable with the actions that are being practiced in their name. But I'm asking us to sit with that that kind of discomfort and to see what else might be in those spaces. And that's the second form of ugly freedom.
1: Yeah, all right, great. Why don't we you know, turn maybe to your first chapter, and it's entitled White and Deadly, Sugar and the Sweet Taste of Freedom. And there you trace, you know, the development of modern conceptions of freedom. Um, You trace them back to sugar plantations in the Barbados. And so can you tell us a bit about why, you know, Barbadian sugar plantations are so central to modern notions of liberal freedom?
2: Sure. You know, uh, Barbados in the 1600s was the most populous English-speaking space in the world outside of London, and many of the practices that we now associate with freedom, with capitalism, with even democratic self-rule, originated... In the in on Barbadian sugar plantations, so we see you know practices of what does it mean to be autonomous from the British Empire? Practices arguing for local autonomy from a distant you know monarchy. Practices that argue for uh, being able to do what you choose on private property, uh, and at the same time. You know the first English sla- English writing slave codes in the world originate on Barbados. Barbados originated the gang system of enslavement, which was one of the forerunners of you know of capitalism and the factory system, as we hear from scholars like Eric Williams and others and Sidney Mintz. So the sugar plantation itself fomented many of the political and economic practices that ne- we now see to be the backbone of. Of aspects of liberalism and of aspects of colonialism and of capitalism. And I wanted to point to that um, not only to focus on the sugar plantation, but to show the way in which those dynamics of the sugar plantation shaped one of the most important political thinkers of modern freedom, John Locke, to show that Locke's ideals, right, did not just originate from his own musings about what was happening in England or in Europe at the time, but also from his deep colonial knowledge and the way in which he's using the figure of the sugar plantation slave master in order to write about what freedom looks like and, and questions about property and autonomy and consent, And at the same time, not only to look at Locke's focus, but also to look at the way the sugar plantation master, that that vision shaped the United States, right? The, The colony of Carolina was explicitly created to bring Barbadian practices of enslavement and entrepreneurialism and free markets or international markets to the U.S. And so I argue that alongside the central U.S. figures of freedom, where we have the Jeffersonian yeoman farmer who, you know, lives independently and is self-sufficient, or the burly frontiersman who, you know, battles, you know, the, you know, the the dangerous land of Native Americans to make it safe for civilization. We also have another central figure of freedom, which is the Barbadian sugar plantation master, a sugar plantation master deeply invested in practices of white supremacy, in practices of property, uh, you know, of um, private property, and also in practices of local autonomy and collective self-rule in a small polity, and that we need to take this disavowed figure of the Barbadian sugar master more seriously as a central figure of American freedom.
1: Yeah, in relationship to that, you use, um, you use a, a phrase, a concept called masterism, um, and you kind of use the first chapter to kind of set up some of the things that you're going to be exploring in the rest of the book. And so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about masterism um, and maybe how you sort of interrogate it in, in, in Ugly Freedoms.
2: Masterism is a term that was actually created by a freed person who was formerly enslaved on a sugar plantation. So it was important for me to draw on some of my critiques on the people themselves who are experiencing that form of brutality and who also are using that as a groundwork to craft different worlds and to imagine what could be different. So part of what this freed person states is that all we want is to forever be freed of masterism. So I take masterism there not merely to mean or not only to mean the the physical sense of having a master who steals your labor and steals your, you know, your livelihood and enforces control over you, but a larger system of power in which masterism is the prototype, for systems of capitalism, systems of white supremacy as they play out in political systems, where people with power, racial power, political power, and economic power, um, and power of heteropatriarchy are the ones who are able to control the lives of the people beneath them, both stealing their labor, stealing their ability to have control over their own lives. And to think about this, this claim, what, when, when you know, um, to say that all we want is to be rid of masterism is a way of saying is all we want is to be able to have control over the conditions of our lives. And this doesn't have to be a new form of domination. I think in many ways, we can see it as a form of collaborative self-sufficiency or a forms of equality, mutuality, and respect that don't just, you know, say, instead of being possessed by someone else, I'm now possessed by myself, which is narratives of freedom of self-possession. I think being rid of masterism is being rid of all of the dynamics of the slave plantation, which includes having any notion of possession as the groundwork of freedom.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Well, one of the things I'm curious about, you know, you're sort of using the Barbadian sugar plantations to sort of situate the Political theory of John Locke, and to think about um, conceptions of freedom within sort of the liberal democratic tradition, on one hand, and then also in this chapter is a is a deep engagement with contemporary art practices, um, especially Kara Walker's *A Subtlety*. And so I wanted, and I wondered about this across the book, and so I'm going to ask this question probably again of other chapters. But I was curious about about why art is a a useful sort of window into the dynamics of ugly freedom, and if there are any kind of pitfalls to to looking and reading art that way. And you do mention some of them in this chapter, I will say, but I just, I wanted to hear you talk about that.
2: I find art really useful to think about political life and political concepts um, for a few reasons. On the one hand, I draw from Lisa Lowe's reading of liberalism, where she argues that sometimes the central dynamics of liberal thought that are not explicitly advocated in liberalism, but they're kind of, you know, darker and more violent side are best seen in aesthetic objects because they can oftentimes show or reveal in visual form and in tactile form uh, what the, the the violent aspects of liberalism that liberal theory itself might disavow or ignore. So art for her becomes a resource for seeing that kind of complexity, especially it's transnational complexity, which I think once again is crucial when we're thinking about something, something like Barbados. Um, so I think art is useful in that way. I also think, you know, if ugliness is drawing on an aesthetic category as a kind of aesthetic judgment. And I want to bring aesthetics in, in some part because political theory You know, this is uh, more about my, the reason that I write in an interdisciplinary way is because sometimes I get frustrated with the narrowness with which political theory understands the political and can often exclude cultural practices, artistic practices, and even if maybe some aspects of European high art might be allowed to be included in particular aspects of political theory. Certainly they're less so to forms of art that circulate all over the globe or in the global South, and certainly forms of low culture that pervade, you know, a, a different spaces. Low culture is often seen to be, you know, wh- whether it's, you know, escapist or fantasy or, or too low to kind of do some of the serious work of interrogating key political concepts. So it's important for me to rehabilitate, in a you know, the, the low culture. Though I would not put Kara Walker in that category in any way, but I would with some of the other uh, things that I look at in the book. But also cultural products that are seen to be um, separate from the you know the the heaviness or the seriousness of the political, because for almost all of us, where do we get our political knowledge and our ideas and our visions for? you know, for what the world can be and for our problems with the world, it's it's our engagements with culture and media. So I think rather than imagining that those are separate from a hallowed space of the political, I want them to be incorporated in there. And so that's part of why I incorporate everything from, you know, the kind of, you know, spectacular art of Kara Walker to television shows like The Wire or, you know, to um, problematic films like Manderlei. I want us to think about all of these spaces and, you know, for what they tell us about the politics of our world and how we might imagine them differently.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. And that provides a, a perfect transition to to talking about your second chapter, um, which is entitled Tragedies of Emancipation, Freedom, Sex, and Theft After Slavery. Um, and as you mentioned, it does sort of Focus mostly on Lon, Lars von Trier's 2005 film, Manderley. Um And otherwise the chapter kind of examines the history of the afterlife of emancipation um, across sort of popular representation, and then the sort of popular and sort of, I would say scholarly imaginary. And so can you tell us a bit about that film, about why it's useful for you, um, and about how it is you're interrogating histories of emancipation?
2: Um. I'll I'll start with the, the the second question first, which is that part of what I want to do in looking at something like Mandalay, which uh, helps us to not, you know, it, it, what it what the film imagines is that there is a plantation in the South that is still practicing slavery seventy years after emancipation, and a white woman comes in emancipates the plantation, and then enacts her own forms of domination. In the end of the film, the entire plantation explodes in violence and fury, and the the project of emancipation seems to be undone. And so the film helps us to see the ways in which the stories and the ways in which we narrate emancipation and its aftermath are often so invested in present understandings of what emancipation was, what were the logics of racial domination that that um, uh, that were newly developed in its wake. And it helps us to see forms of storytelling, not as projects of historical revisionism or truth-telling, but as ways of reimagining the past to help us to reimagine the future. And I think this text is a rich way to get at that. The, the film itself is also really important because of the way in which it's been received. At the time that it came out, um, it was... You know, some people liked it. Most people panned it for the way in which it seemed to suggest that racism and that slavery are, you know, are um, that 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 slavery was easier than it has been depicted and that it was tapping into racial stereotypes in order to depict the lives of the people on the plantation. All right. One of the most important reviews, I think, called it a ghastly spectacle of racism. So on the one hand, it was deemed to be itself an, an incredibly racist project. On the other hand, it was also used in within um, the, the kind of field of scholarship of Afro pessimism, especially with Frank Wilderson, who's written about Manderley and spoken about it, and also argued that Manderley is in many ways, reveals the, the truth of Afro pessimism in the sense that it shows the ways in which slavery continues to be ongoing after enslavement, and becomes a permanent condition equated with blackness within the larger, you know, modern political life. Uh, and 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 shows the, the kind of ontology of anti-Blackness as it shapes our world. And so I read Manderley as doing something a little bit different than either of those texts. And I want us to see Manderley as, on the one hand, offering something similar to what um, an Afro-pessimist reading would be, in the sense that it is showing the ways in which laws and policies and society are so deeply invested in and structured on anti-Blackness and that that connects up to the present. But I also see a third reading of the film, which moves beyond uh, that Afro-pessimist interpretation and also in a kind of larger body of scholarship that I call tragedies of emancipation that includes work by Orlando Patterson and Sadia Hartman and David Scott, who help us to see the ways in which emancipation projects often just reinstate new projects of white supremacy to instead say that, you know, this is does show the tragedy of emancipation, but it moves beyond us to also show the ways in which we can find practices of freedom in acts that might otherwise be discarded or degraded as acts that trade on stereo racial stereotypes that involve um, manipulation or, or forms of, of, um, of uh, of deviance and i want us to to see the, the ways in which the end of the film is doing something different which is not to say that it's celebrating the kind of you know resistant subject who you know the liberal individual yearning to be free who can bust their chains that's not what's happening there and i think that's why it's been overlooked because part of the emancipatory actions involve things like um sexual awkwardness and almost forms of, you know, not sexual violence, but certainly ways of, of, um, uh, sexual, you know, intercourse that is difficult to watch and that is uncomfortable and that undoes, you know, um, ways of imagining how people can otherwise be subordinated to others. I want us to see theft in the film there, you know, a theft at the end of the film that, that leads to the downfall of the plantation to see theft, not as the opposite of freedom or as a morally debased act, but here as a calculated practice that actually contributes to the ending of white domination at the end of the film, which is the fact that the plantation burns down and grace runs away and that the people living on the plantation actually, are able to go back to being the self-sufficient Black polity and self-governing Black polity that they were before Grace came on the scene in a way that, you know, we are taught to, the, the film frames as if they are living in a space of enslavement, but what we realize later is that they're the ones who are making, the people who are, you know, the, the freed people are actually making the laws and the rules on the plantation. And in many ways, it's almost as if it needs to appear as if it's a a plantation that practices slavery in order for them to be able to have that buffer zone to have their own self-sufficient polity. It, right, it's as if none of the people that they interact with around the plantation would ever agree to or allow and would probably violate their self-sufficiency. But when people understand it to be a practice of enslavement, even 70 years after emancipation, right, all of the kind of white actors around the plantation are fine with it. And so you know, all of these things are not what we might imagine to be practices of resistance or agency that we would desire, but I still want to see what becomes possible there. And to use that as one way for us to imagine um, practices of freedom that, that can undo some of forms of racial violence and anti-Blackness, rather than either, you know, believing that there can be a revolutionary romance where everything is undone in one sense, or the claim that this is an ontological condition
0: that's ongoing and
2: cannot be changed.
1: I was very persuaded by your by your reading of the film and and by your entire discussion in this chapter, but I find myself being, um, you know, I guess hamstrung by by conventional thought, and I keep wondering, you know, we have these practices of freedom that help us interrogate a certain sort of set of racial of racially dominating logics. Um, I guess I keep thinking about: Is there? Are, Do ugly freedoms sort of resist world building? Do they resist, you know, systemization? Is there ever a way where we're in a space like, so, you know, at the end of the film, you say, you know, the the Black polity has been returned unto itself. So there, what kind of world are they living in? You know, if you were to hypothesize about that.
2: Great. Uh, You know, I think the... The characters on the film discuss the world in which they're living in, and they recognize it's a world in which the only way that their polity, you know, that their their society, their community can remain secure is as if people understand it to be a, pr- a practice of slavery out of time. And there's a claim in which, right, Willem, who's, you know, one of the kind of... Um, the key figures, the kind of elder statesmen of the Black community there, you know, says the minute that we leave the gates of Mandalay, we are, you know, we are going to be attacked or violated or lynched and our lives will be worth nothing. So it's not, and I think this is part of the ugliness of it, they're crafting a world in a world that they have been given. And that still takes enormous courage and ingenuity, even if it is not an ideal polity. They are still making laws that are connected to practices of enslavement. They are still living in a world that would rather see black people enslaved than living in a self-governing polity. And so this is where that kind of sense of the, the disappointment or the frustration or kind of obstructed agency comes in with ugly freedoms, because so many of the ugly freedoms that I look at in the second valence, ugly freedoms that are freedom practices in spaces that are otherwise denigrated or devalued are not hallowed images of, you know, hallelujah, everything is better. You know, everything is, you know, changed and and we are all free, which means that we all now have complete agency over our lives and we are all self-determining subjects, right? There's no point in the book where we really see that. And, you know, maybe that's the more pessimistic part of this project, but I also don't want the pessimism to take over. And I still want to say there are still possibilities for, thinking about how to craft worlds and how to practice, you know, a kind of collaborative and respectful forms of, of, of world crafting, even in spaces and worlds that we do not choose and that are not going to allow us to be, you know, the unburdened subjects.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's you know, it's really helpful. I mean, a part of this is me working through your, your book's arguments and trying to turn them over in my mind so I understand them hopefully close to how you've written them. And it's really useful because I, I do, I'm catching myself wanting um, these practices of ugly freedom to somehow resist in a kind of unencumbered kind of liberal democratic free subject. But of course that is your point. Um, and so on that, I do have one more thing about the second uh, chapter, which is uh, you kind of in the chapter with a, with a short meditation on the 2014 protests that followed the the murder of Mike Brown, and then also the 2020 protests which followed the murder of George Floyd, and then you reference uh, Glenn Lowry, uh, who characterized those protests, all of them, as impotent and sort of unable to really address, to stop, to halt uh, the march of of either racial inequity or uh, the carceral state. And so you say after that, um, that a Mandalay inspired reading might help us better understand those those protests or look at them in a different light. And I just, I wanted to give you a chance to say a little something about that.
2: Sure. I have been um, thinking a lot about the Black Lives Matter protests both their important inception in 2014 and also their you know perhaps ephemeral world making shifts in 2020 and when I first wrote that, I was coming out of you know it was it was in the fall of 2020 when I was really thinking that through, and I was really invested and um, uh, and, and joyful about the ways in which the protests themselves had galvanized popular sentiment around the world, right, that they were the largest protests in US history, they were the most multiracial, the most intergenerational, the most um, kind of gender inclusive. And I thought, you know, this is the kind of world that, you know, when we think about what does the possibilities for a kind of world-making or kinds of visions for what people want to see, this is what's there. And even all of the disagreements on the ground about, are we arguing for abolition? Are we arguing for defunding? Are we just arguing to stop police violence? I didn't see those discussions as problematic. I thought those were central and the most crucial discussions that people should be having. Right, The marching does not, you know, people protesting on the ground does not ever mean that everybody agrees. It means that people have a space to hash out really serious debates about what power looks like in our society and how do we want to change that. So I didn't see those debates as as challenging the central mission, but as core to what was happening. Um, As we know, you know, given everything in the world and subsequently since then, some of that power of Black Lives Matter, of the protests themselves and of the movement, has has weakened and has shifted. And I know there are some people now who want to say that the protests did nothing, but I do not agree with that. And I still want to hold on to the visions that were being practiced on the ground, because those visions don't go away, to think about the ways in which the work of Black Lives Matter has shaped society and policy sp- in other ways. It's not Moving to a radical transformation, but we can still see certain shifts in funding, prioritize in funding debate. I mean, the the D.C. mayoral debate right now is about whether or not to defund the police or to refund the police. And that would not have happened without Black Lives Matter protests. Um, I have kids in the DC public school system and Black Lives Matter activists have created an entire curriculum for all kids in DCPS from grades K through 12 as an anti-racist education. And even as we see anti-racist education being banned in other places, in, in part, it's because of the, I think the work that this can do to really shift cultural knowledge and expectations. So without saying that what happened in The the protests in 2020 and their continued reverberations means that the world is entirely different or that there was either transformation or nothing at all. I want us to be sitting in that more uncomfortable middle space to see both the problems that were there and the ways in which it pushed a lot of cultural changes and agendas forward, even in a transnational context.
1: Yeah, just a, a quick follow up. Um, I guess I, I again have a, a question of, of efficacy, and I'm curious about, you know, about how we measure ugly freedoms. You know, I know it's a big capacious category, um, but how we would measure their efficacy, and if it's if it's if it's if it's something that's understood in the behavior, the practices, the discourses themselves. Um, whatever it is, we might be labeling uh, ugly freedoms themselves. Is that is that where we measure it, or if it's always a kind of that kind of accounting that you just did um, for us in your response, where you're saying, well, hey, look, we can point to curriculum, we can point to these uh, cultural shifts, and and those are important. Or you know, I'm just I'm curious. Maybe there's not a sort of systematic way of responding to it. But again, you know, I mean, it's in your book, and so I'm just curious about this question of efficacy
2: some I, sometimes i think efficacy is helpful a way to approach it and so when i've answered your question just now i gave some kind of you know answers about you know public debates and mayoral but sometimes practices of freedom should not be measured by efficacy and they should be measured by either the visions that they enact or by the actual practices at that moment i mean just to think about black lives matter protests again What if we measure the practices of freedoms by what was being created in the moment by the people on the ground, by the kind of community and solidarity that was being enacted in that moment, even when that solidarity was also, you know, riven with debates about where do we go from here? What if it's that practice of, of kind of, of action and of care that is itself the experience of freedom and so I want to hold on to that as well, because I think if we only think about freedom in terms of its efficacy, then we miss out on the experience and the the in the momentness of freedom, of what it opens, you know, of how it is formed in action. I am drawing here a little bit from Hannah Arendt, who argues that freedom is in the moment of its exercise and not before and not after, and that it's not about the goal, but it's about the the. The, the self-expression and the world-making practice in the moment of its exercise. So there's something of that that I wanna hold on to in not trying to reduce all forms of freedom practices to what they can immediately affect or even affect in the longer term.
1: Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's great for thinking about, you know, chapter three, which is, uh, is entitled uh, Thwarting Neoliberalism, Boredom, Dysfunction and Other Visionless Challenges. Um, And there you kind of take on neoliberalism sort of as it's manifest in, you know, I guess, a a fictionalized Baltimore um, in The Wire, in the television serial drama, The Wire. Um, And so what do we learn about thwarting neoliberalism from The Wire?
2: A lot of the language of neoliberalism is suffused with freedom, right? I think uh, Anthony Bogues even says freedom, you know, freedom is the late... The lingua franca of neoliberalism. And so many of the policies of neoliberalism, in terms of deregulating businesses, uh, defunding welfare, are all done with the claim that the state is always a fount of unfreedom and that freedom is only found in individual responsibility and individual risk taking. And what this does is justify a kind of destruction of the social order in the sense of it's, you know. Uh, instantiating dramatic, you know, forms of economic inequality. It's destroying the environment. It is destroying all forms of social network and support and even encouraging people not to look to their communities for support, but to only look to themselves and to imagine freedom comes from, you know, entrepreneurship or self-investment. And so what we see in The Wire, you know, The Wire is often understood to be a show that reveals the way in which neoliberalism can destroy a city. And in fact, that's what its producer David Simon has claimed. But when we actually scratch beneath the surface, there are so many ways in which forms of neoliberalism are actually being thwarted in the wire. But they are being thwarted in ways that might be considered boring or problematic or morally Complex or even so unremarkable as not to be worthy of the name. And that's part of what I want to look at. I look at the ways in which bureaucracy, which is considered to be the fount of unfreedom for you know under neoliberal you know, attacks on the state, how we can see turgid, slow bureaucracies as actually a power that thwarts the violence of neoliberalism. Right by, by refusing to enact some of its you know, forms of dictates and measurements of, of success and efficiency. Um, I'm interested in the ways in which you know, neoliberalism is so tied to securitization, especially securitization of poor and minority neighborhoods as a way of securing wealth from people who are poor and, and securing capital away from the people who don't have it. And I look at the ways in which neoliberal forms of security are also really easily thwarted, even by people who are living in impoverished spaces and are seen to have very little access to political power. Um I'm also you know interested in forms in the ways in which so many of the characters simply reject neoliberal rationality. right They reject seeing themselves as individually responsible market actors who, you know, focus on finance over community. Um, almost every character in The Wire you know, does not find that a morally compelling vision of subjectivity. So when we think of important understandings of neoliberalism coming from people like Michel Foucault or Wendy Brown, who focus a lot on the way in which neoliberal rationality changes how we understand ourselves as citizens and as subjects, uh, that's true to a certain degree. But part of what we see in The Wire is the way in which it's actually quite easy for people to to reject and um, refuse many of these aspects of neoliberal rationality. Sometimes they're economically compelled to buy into them, but other times people just cast them off and, and move on with their lives.
1: Yeah, I was, I, you know, I really liked your um, discussion of, 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 you know, you kind of go through the cast of main characters and the various ways that they sort of take up or put down uh neoliberal rationality. And I was, uh, you know, I was curious really about your discussion of, of, of um, Marlon at the end, Marlowe, excuse me, um, just because, you know, you know, you know, and anyone who's seen the show knows this, that, you know, he goes to this party with all these sort of bigwigs, and and you would think that he would be ready. You know, this is what he's been sort of preparing for. He's kind of escaped arrest. He's escaped. I mean, he's come out on top as the drug kingpin, and yet he gets into that room and he's deeply uncomfortable, ends up leaving it. And you read this as a, as a rejection of, of neoliberal rationality, but I was wondering sort of, you know, throughout that discussion about how how other actors sort of, all kinds of actors, and I just mean like political actors, people, um, how they sort of take on and take off neoliberal rationality if it's not something that is, that is always... Always the driving factor, even for for you know our best sort of neoliberal subjects. I mean, you hold Stringer Bell up as the kind of yes, he is always that way. But I think in real life, it's it's not quite that. And so I was just curious about that discussion, what we do with that, because I do feel like people wear many hats, like Proposition Joe, for example.
2: I I would entirely agree with you. I do think people wear many hats, and that's why I think when we start to really think about. The work of neoliberal subjectivity, we have to be more nuanced. I think someone like Marlowe shows us that. And it doesn't mean when he walks away from being able to start to make even more money through legitimate holdings because now he's associating with wealthy businessmen as opposed to being the drug kingpin on the street. Um, walking away from that doesn't mean that he, therefore, he was always this like kind sweetheart who, you know, always was yearning to be free or something like that. I mean, we know he's killed so many people. And the reason that he's come out on top is because he's significantly more ruthless than anybody else. He is not bound by kinship ties the way that other people are. And he will kill anybody if it will make him a profit, which is different from some of the earlier dealers that we saw in earlier iterations of the show. And I think, you know, perhaps for the... Um, it, you know, the show wants us to see you know, Marlowe's ruthlessness as what allows him to finally be on top, his absolute decimation of community and kinship in the service of money. And yet he then walks away from the ability to make money in a smoother, easier way without violence at the end of the show. So it, what motivates him is more complex. And I don't think the show tells us exactly what motivates him then in the end. And we can believe it was a desire for power perhaps finally being having smooth power flows might be considered undesirable to him. Um, it could be that he felt uncomfortable in this space I mean I, I'm not sure that's a great reading but it's a possible one. but the show you know wants us to understand Marlowe in a more complex way and I think that goes directly to what you are saying which is that, people might go in and out of thinking of connecting to or rejecting neoliberal subjectivity all the time in their lives and i think when we start to think about both the power of neoliberalism and its vulnerabilities recognizing the way in which neoliberal subjectivity is often very uncompelling to people people might be drawn to it at some point or in certain spaces if there are if that's a way for them to gain things that they need in life but you know, recognizing that weakness, I think, can help us to think about ways in which neoliberalism itself can be more broadly undermined. Hmm. hmm.
1: All right, yeah, no, thank you. Um, all right, well, why don't we, why don't we move on to, to your last chapter, um, which is entitled Freedom as Climate Destruction, Guts, Dust, Toxins in an Era of Consumptive Sovereignty. Um, and, and for me, this seemed to be your most experimental chapter. But maybe that's because I'm most um, unfamiliar with a lot of the, a lot of the scholarship, a lot of the terms that you're you're using to uh, think about these different sort of categories of political behavior. And so I wonder if we could maybe one talk about that, but then also I think it might be useful to to start by talking about what is consumptive sovereignty.
2: Um, I will answer that by even, I think, going back a little bit further to say, you know, what does freedom have to do with climate destruction? Because I think then that can help us to get to the question of, of, of consumption. You know, so many understandings of freedom, both from the history of political thought and even in our modern colloquial usage, are connected to climate violence. Right? Key thinkers of freedom, if we think about Kant or Locke, understand nature to be the realm of determinism of you know of weakness, and that freedom comes from controlling nature. So we already from the start have understandings of freedom where nature is that which is to be tamed and controlled in order for people to you know draw from the land but to be independent. We have understandings of freedom that um, that are based on a kind of human exceptionalism that what makes people what makes freedom is that it's only people who are able to enact it. And that all other creatures in this world are dependent on people who should who dominate them, and so you know we have that. And then we think of our contemporary neoliberal uses of freedom, where freedom is about resource use and consumption. I, I mean, it's not even neoliberal; it's it's connected to capitalism, you know, uh, from from the start. That freedom is found in laboring on the land and turning that into a profit. And that profit comes from using natural resources that nobody can tell you how to use your money, that that's up to the individual choice making. And all of these things contribute to the decimation of our climate and our world. So I understand consumptive sovereignty to be the way in which forms of resource consumption seem to confer freedom and sovereignty on individuals we see that you know from kings to you know people just using resources on their land i draw from a washington post article which shows how a wealthy enclave in san diego during the first uh, california drought we're now in the second you know, refused to have water restrictions because they claimed that it was their freedom to consume as much water as they needed on their land right and that some of them you know even made the argument that because they have you know 80 acres on their land and there's only four people living there That therefore they, you know, use less resources, you know, per capita, you know, or they have less people living on the land, so they use less resources. So that justifies their excessive consumption. And that is the precise kind of vision of consumptive sovereignty that I want to pull out the way in which somehow the, the frantic consumption of resources without regulation, without concern about a public or concern about the, the, you know, using resources up for the world, that that seems to confer a form of sovereignty of the power of life and death as a, as a type of violent freedom over public life, over any kinds of regulation, and certainly over the, the non-human environment. Yeah. Well, following that, I
1: wonder if you could say more about, you know, kind of your focus on, you know, the human biome on sort of this idea of dust, of these different ways of sort of reading bodies and interconnectedness, how that relates to to ugly freedoms.
2: Thanks. As you noted, this is my most experimental chapter. And so this is the space where I really feel like I I go out on a bit of a wacky limb in, in trying to think about, you know, really pushing the, the world making of ugly freedom beyond boundaries that people that anybody might find comfortable or familiar. And so I look at all of these different spaces. So one, the human microbiome, uh, two, uh, dust and three, the way in which we're constantly eating each other's skin and DNA, uh, as all different ways of dethroning visions, one of individual sovereignty. All of them shows the show the way in which individuals are not sovereign. So why would we why would we even base a vision of freedom on that? And two, I think they all show the ways in which um, we are so deeply interconnected at the level of agency, at the level of power, with other bodies, with other you know humans, with with other creatures, and even with non living matter. So I look at something like the gut microbiome or, you know, the human microbiome, which are all the bacteria and microbiotic creatures that help to comprise the human body. And when we look at it numerically, you know, the micro. Our non-human bacterial cells in our body outnumber what we would actually consider our human self selves by a factor of between eight to one and ten to one. So numerically, our bodies are primarily non-human, and the microbiome itself often helps to shape our decisions. There's, you know, with with, you know, popular science research on the relationship between the gut microbiome and the brain shows the way in which gut microbiota help to determine our feeling states when we're hungry, when we're cranky, if we're depressed, if we are elated, so much of that is connected to the composition of our gut microbiota, which is also then shaped by the food that we eat, by the processed food that we eat, by what soaps we use, by how our municipality regulates wastewater, by decisions from the FDA of what chemicals can go into soap and what can't. So on the one hand, this shows the way in which our body and even some of the aspects of agency in our body are shaped by non-human worlds. And it also shows it's hard to pinpoint the origin of agency. Right? If a familiar definition of freedom is like, I decide what I want to do, But when the gut microbiota helps to shape our decisions and that gut microbiota in turn is shaped by municipal regulations, by decisions of corporations of what, you know, what chemicals to put in or how to produce food and what we eat, then all of these things helped, you know, make the desire to pinpoint an original moment of agency very difficult to do. So I use the microbiome to think about what what does freedom look like if we can't pinpoint an origin site of agency and when that agency itself is always part of a more than human collective? And to think about, you know, a world making capacities and collaboration that can happen in that space. Those are different understandings of what freedom can be than ones where I self will my own action and I decide it. I do similar, you know, things with thinking about dust in the way that dust comprises our shared world it has everything from bomb fallout from 50 years ago to drywall made in other places around the globe to you know the skin and the feces of animals and strangers and how that helps to literally shape our our spaces and our environment and same with the way in which we're constantly eating shared skin. And I have to say, every time I had presented this as a work in progress, and then I would be like going out to dinner with friends and scholars afterwards, they were all like, ew, did, <laughs> do we go out to dinner now? Because you know, every time we eat together with people, we are eating their skin, we're eating their feces, we're sharing DNA with each other every time we shake hands. And oftentimes, every time we, we touch a doorknob, you know, if we put our hand in our mouth afterwards, we're then eating the DNA of people, the shed skin of people we don't even know. So, you know, part of what that does is help us to to get out of this sense of that, you know, our body is this sacred zone that is the boundary of our freedom, and to help us to see the ways in which we are already so deeply interconnected with other people. And so imagining the kind of agency and collective practices that would need to be built on that, it makes it much less threatening when we've been collectives all along, when we've been interconnected with people that we might choose and might not choose, but we're all living in a world together. And that's where our agency comes from. And so some of these examples are definitely gross and discomforting, but I want to use for us to sit in that kind of discomforting space to see, uh, what, what, what it loosens in terms of our understandings of what bodies are and how we're connected to one another. Yeah.
1: Well just, I mean, I mean, that was a great, um, sort of rundown of, of that chapter, but to close, I'm just, I'm curious, like, you know, your book, it seems like you you challenge or you reveal that sort of the basic categories of, of of modern liberalism are sort of founded in domination. You travesty the kind of liberal subject, the neoliberal subject. Um, I'm curious, is 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 there anything to be retained from liberalism? Is this do you understand this book to be a kind of wholesale critique of liberalism as a as a as a mode of political organization, or is this a call to, to to understand? I don't know to understand those sort of basic categories differently.
2: That's a hard question, and the book itself doesn't fall down on one side or another. But I will, I'll, I'll say what I think about it, um, because my answer would be both of those things. On the one hand, I do think it's hard to retain many of the categories of liberal thought, or at least to continue to idealize them when we see the ways in which they are so deeply connected with enslavement, domination, and colonization. And I think, you know, that is also claims that we've seen from really important work in, um, uh, in anti-colonial studies, in indigenous studies, in uh, aspects of black and feminist thought. And so I, you know, it's hard to retain an investment in something like individual freedom when we see it in this way, and yet I don't think that means we need to throw out every single thing. Um, freedom as a term is certainly not exhausted by liberalism. Liberalism might take it to be its you know to, to have kind of you know proprietary claim over freedom. But freedom certainly exceeds liberalism, and there's so many other forms of freedom circulating in the world that can be drawn from um, when people start to look for it. Or other aspects of liberalism, like the like aspects of self-rule. And once again, liberalism does not you know, totally have control over self-rule. There's been many forms of self-rule throughout history that are totally separate from liberalism, um, and that I think we can draw on and also... Um, understand, right, if self rules about everybody's shared capacity, equal capacity to have a say in the conditions that govern their lives, that's something that we need to be pushing for. Um, and maybe we, what we need to do is look for different models and always be attentive to even how those aspects of self-rule themselves can produce violence and to try to steer a different path. If I knew how to precisely do that... Um, I'd be in a different space right now, (laughs) but that is at least, you know, that's where I think, you know, we as a society need to go. And of course those kinds of decisions and understandings themselves always have to be collaborative, always are are going to be quite different when we actually take seriously everybody and, you know, all creatures having an equal say in what that would look like.
0: All
1: right, great. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really
2: appreciate it. (laughs)